0: Hello, distinguished guests, and thank you so very much for tuning in to today's episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. I am your host here on the DTP. My name is Colton G, and today on the show, we are joined by Danny Blueberry, as we discuss years of growing in isolation. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'm going to be giving you a brief discussion of exactly what that means coming up very, very soon. But of course, before we get there, there's a few things I want to go ahead and do first. And that, of course, is thank those of you who have been so patient with me with the best of episodes of the last two years of Desert Tiger. I know that I said I was going to release one of these episodes last week. But unfortunately, due to a little bit of a scheduling conflict, that hasn't worked out. So you can keep your eyes open for the best of Desert Tiger Year One dropping next week. So once again, thank those of you who have been super. Super patient with that, and thanks to those of you who have headed on over to ilovedtp.com and have grabbed yourself some Desert Tiger Podcast merch because that is one of the ways that this show helps grow and continue expanding is because of those beautiful people who are willing to show their love of the show by wearing it everywhere they go. Of course, this show is also brought to you by XYZ. XYZ, it's a clever way of me telling you that your ad could go here. Email me over at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com and we will discuss that further. All right. Growing up, being raised and living in any form of isolation can happen for various reasons. And depending on your environment, normal can be a very different experience from what you perceive or what we see in popular culture. Imagine growing up surrounded by music, I know most of us have been, but only of a specific variety. Hymns and choirs thrive in your neighborhood and community, but at the same time, the king of rock and roll. Elvis Presley himself somehow has not broken through as a household name in this community as well. This was a reality for Danny Blueberry, who wouldn't find the cry of an electric guitar until one fateful day in 1977 when the classic riff of Walk This Way by the legendary Aerosmith would happen to just be playing on the radio, and this would change Danny's life forever. Now, with rock and roll driving his passion for music, Danny couldn't get enough, writing and playing as much as possible while being a lonely rebel in a very strict religious community. He knew he wanted to pursue this dream, but was afraid of the cost and possibly losing the community he was raised in. He recorded a dozen of the songs he had written in the early 90s, but outside of a very small run of cassettes, Danny wasn't sure how to maneuver the beast known as the music industry. After a few life-changing events that would end up leading to the launch of Blueberry Guitars, Danny Blueberry founded he wanted to take these songs to stage. And much to his surprise, after years of not playing these songs, his home city of Montreal embraced his sound. So much so that the songwriter has even added a few sold out shows to his resume. Now Danny is ready to share these tracks, written in his years of isolation as a rebel striving to learn more about the modern world around him with the world he now finds himself surrounded by and a part of. Danny's debut album, Isolation, features these 12 tracks plus four other songs that capture the growth that this blueberry has gone through in the 25 plus years since originally recording the other dozen songs that go on this album today i am extremely excited to be joined by danny blueberry as we discuss his upbringing in the strict orthodox jewish community of montreal canada how this affected him growing up what it was finally like to find rock and roll and to have his hands on a guitar How he listened to music while he was going to community schools that had very strict rules. The writing of the album Isolation and what it finally feels like to release these songs to the world. And of course, we also talk about Blueberry Guitars. There is so much in this conversation today with Danny Blueberry. It is jam-packed. It is an incredible look into the life of someone who grew up wanting to be in what is considered popular culture but it just wasn't allowed i hope that you guys are incredibly excited to hear my conversation with danny blueberry today because i know that i am incredibly excited for you to hear this look into the world of danny blueberry But of course, before we get there, I should probably play you a track off of Isolation so that you can get a little bit of an idea of Danny's background, and as you're going to hear during this interview, his songs might be a little bit different. Some of the people who have found his music find it quite humorous, even though that wasn't his intention, and I am sure that you are also going to get that feeling from this song as you undress me with your eyes
1: the desert tiger podcast
0: all right we are here with danny blueberry of course that wasn't the name that he was given at birth but we're going to get through the story that got this blueberry blooming so bright and of course thank you so much for joining me here on the show today danny blueberry oh it's my pleasure happy to be here i am absolutely ecstatic to have you on the show Likewise. So, I mean, just going through my research and my notes, there's a, a huge story behind you, Danny, and I really would like to get through all of it. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to start at the beginning because, as for myself and maybe some of the listeners of the show, maybe they grew up in a household where music was encouraged and they were allowed to listen to the things that they wanted to, but. This wasn't necessarily the home that you grew up in, or the environment you grew up in. So give us a little bit of a background of Danny growing up, and just how you ended up finding rock and roll, even when it was hidden from you.
1: All right, Um, Well, I was brought up in uh, Montreal in one of the ultra-Orthodox religious Jewish neighborhoods, I guess the most ultra-Orthodox religious Jewish neighborhood in Montreal, which is borderline, Outremont, and Vivimi. Um, My parents were quite strictly religious. Uh, My father always wore a black hat. My mother always had her hair covered with a wig. Um, I was sent to all-boys schools. Family kept the Sabbaths very strictly. We weren't allowed to carry anything in our pockets during the Sabbaths. We weren't able to turn on lights or use electricity. Um, Kosher was strictly enforced, like seriously strictly enforced. So we'd never go to any non-kosher restaurants. We were quite restricted and kept out of the secular world. I guess a, a good example, if you just want to think of the Amish, that was something like the way we were brought up. But I wouldn't say we were without music, you know, because there was a lot of music in the Jewish holidays, a lot of music in the synagogues during prayers, a lot of choir singing during during school, so we'd we'd be in choirs. I, I loved music from a very early age. It was just that there was never any music other than Bible-related music. So we'd be and we'd be singing in Hebrew. So all the music I was exposed to was pretty much passages from the Old Testament or from the religious prayer books put to music. And when I was, let's say. Eight or nine years old, I was in a choir, and the rabbi leading the choir was, was telling us that he made up some songs. and he was, We were singing songs that he put the tunes to. And I thought, even at that age, that's very cool. Like he's actually pulling songs out of the sky and, and putting them to music. So I thought, I'm going to try this. So one day I, I, I prepared the night before, and I just somehow started humming something, and it didn't sound like anything else. I went to choir practice the next day and I went up to the rabbi and I said, I've, I've written a song or I've come up with a tune and he, he didn't want to believe me. So I sang it to him and he, he was just very skeptical. I said, well, if, you're, if you don't believe me, where did I copy it from? And uh, he, he couldn't find anything that it was actually an original. All my friends in, in the class were, were cheering me on because like they couldn't believe I did it. But at that point on, I always thought it was cool to write music But I also knew that that was only half the job. If you're going to take a passage out of the Bible or out of a prayer book, you're you're not really writing music. You're putting someone else's words to music. So in my heart, I knew I wanted to write my own stuff and express myself.
0: Okay, so you had been introduced to music through the choir and through the religious background. It's just you weren't introduced to mainstream styles of music, but you still were wanting to write and embrace yourself in music as much as you could, even at a young age. Well, yeah.
1: At the very young age, I, I knew it was cheating. You know, I knew that putting a tune to somebody else's, I didn't like the words, you know, basically. You get to understand the words, and I was almost like an atheist from the age of eight. I just didn't like the rules. And it was it was resonating with all my friends and all my relatives, all my young cousins. Everyone was just following everything they were told. But I was asking questions from my parents, like, "Well, what if this isn't true? What if we don't have to keep kosher? What if we don't have to do this?" And it wasn't well received, to say the least. You know, so I was just not happy singing words I didn't like. So, but I didn't. I never actually heard of rock and roll until I was maybe ten or eleven. And I was getting into a car, or I got into the car before my parents were there, and the car was starting. I can't remember, maybe it was a taxi. But Walk This Way was playing by, by Aerosmiths, because this was, this was a big turning point in my life. I heard that riff, which is da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. I just heard it. It gripped me. And then I heard just Steven Tyler just wailing away, and it just shook me all, literally shook me. And I said, that, that's something. And uh, slowly but surely, I started digging, and I, and it was Queen and the Rolling Stones and uh, Heart back in the back in oh I'm fifty five now, so this is around 1970, nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy two. Those were the bands that I started listening to. Now, when I was young, I wasn't even speaking English without like a thick accent, you know, because you're brought up. I was brought up by um, immigrants in uh, in. Um, in an ultra-orthodox community, so there's lots of Yiddish and Hungarian being spoken. So I was listening to the words, the way people were singing them. I was sneaking around because you're not really supposed to listen to this. So I was had a little transistor radio that was that I was kept kept in hiding, and I was talking like the radio announcers. And uh, I just felt like I wanted to be part of this world.
0: Wow! So you hid a tiny little transistor radio, and you just, by mimicking the people you heard on the radio, and just by trying to, like, interpret and pull off what you were hearing, you were, in fact, learning as well.
1: Oh, I was I was learning it as if I was studying the Talmud, you know, that I was studying it really, really closely. I, it taught me how to speak. It taught me about the world, because the secluded world doesn't have boys and girls dancing or you're never going to dance with a woman, ever. You know, you're going to be in an arranged marriage and have kids as soon as possible and uh, and raise them the same way you we were raised. It was like the window to a whole different world, and I was studying it as, as carefully as I could.
0: Wow. So how did you hide this transistor radio? Well,
1: how do I put this? My parents weren't really looking for, like, they just, didn't understand what was going on with me, so they weren't looking for it. It wasn't that difficult to hide in the house, you know. where's Danny He's up in his room, but I was sent to boarding schools when I was 13 and onwards, and those schools had strict rules about uh, about where about listening to music. Actually, weren't allowed to to read newspapers or listen to secular music. So there, I had I had a transistor radio that I hid in a tissue box next to my bed in my dorm, and I'd had um, I'd had uh, headphones which. Back then, they didn't have stereo headphones. I had, they had single headphones which you could plug into one ear that you'd be listening to the ball game, but I'd splice two together and scotch, well, like I cut. I had two. I cut one in half, and I glued it so I had two ears. I could listen. To. It wasn't really stereo, but I was listening to music in two ears, and uh, I'd put it under my pillow and I'd listen to music for hours.
0: So you, you MacGyvered yourself. A That's right. makeshift pair set of headphones, just so that you could listen to music in the private school. That's amazing. Oh, thank you.
1: I I think it. You know, I must have invented the Walkman because this was just before the Walkman came out.
0: Wow! Just dedicated to the craft in in listening to as much as you possibly could.
1: Well, I was soaking it all in. It was everything to me. It was there because I really didn't have any. As as I went through the later boarding schools, there were some other rebels, you know, and 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 kids that I could talk to. But in the beginning, there was absolutely no one. And I was a Queen fan, for instance. In the early days, I, I don't even think made mainstream Canada or USA liked them. You know, they were they were weird to to most people, and the people didn't get Freddie Freddie Mercury. But I was coming from a choir background, and there was nothing like the harmonies of Queen. Anywhere, And I I just latched onto those harmonies because that was something that I knew about.
0: Wow. So the harmonies and the operatic sections and like the piano and everything else of Queen ended up reaching into the choir roots of your music knowledge and ended up connecting with that.
1: Absolutely. And, And even to this date, you know, the way they, like Queen is a massive influence on me and the way they were just able to take any style of music and make it their own that's how I approach it too. So I don't like to fixate on a specific genre. Whatever grips me, we can just go with it. There's no rules. So uh, Queen, Queen was a big influence.
0: That's awesome. And you can definitely tell that you don't have a lot of rules or restrictions when it comes to your music. So when was the first time you actually got your hands on a guitar? So when I was 13, my cousins, I had three cousins.
1: I was a, not a very big family. On my father's side, um, he had a sister who had three three kids. They were all older than me, but they were somewhat musical. There was a piano and an accordion in the house, and they they saw. I and mean, even at a, like even when I was eight or nine, I was just moving towards any musical instrument. So they pitched in and they bought me a guitar for my bar mitzvah, which is my 13th birthday. And they didn't think rock and roll was coming, but uh, that was just my best friend because. Growing up, it was pretty lonely, being like the only atheist or the only rebel around. So there was no one I could really talk to. So I just expressed myself. I I learned that guitar really quickly. I picked it up. I'd had a um, few months of lessons, like classical guitar lessons, but that was it. And then, it, you know, from that point on, I've never been really more than a day away from a guitar.
0: Wow. So... Even though this music was considered mainstream and popular, the world that you were living in—it just wasn't even a thought.
1: You know, I I don't even know how many layers away I was from anybody around me knowing a Queen song or a Rolling Stone song. There's just I could ask nobody who knew anybody who knew anybody would have known the song. I once dressed up, for example. I once dressed up as Elvis Purim is a is a Jewish holiday. Similar to Halloween in that people dress up and wear costumes and go door to door. So a few years, like maybe I was 19, I dressed up as Elvis and started going door to door, you know. And nobody knew who I was. I said, I'm Elvis. And they said, well, that is who? I didn't realize, even I didn't realize how far away everyone was.
0: That even the oh called king of rock and roll hadn't even broken through
1: did not permeate not not at all nobody knew who i was
0: it was crazy oh my goodness wow so after you get out of the private school system how do you continue into your life of music and how does your life continue forward from there because you're still within the non-secular i'm not sure how you worded it there
1: well, I was in the religious community, the ultra-Orthodox yes. community. Okay. But I was like, as I got older, I was rebelling more and more. I got the classical guitar, got me till around I was 16. Then I got an electric guitar. Then there was a religious band in high school. I went to high school. I went to several high schools. I was in a high school in Toronto, then Scranton, Pennsylvania, then Denver, Colorado. So in Denver, I spent two years in a boarding school. And I had an electric guitar, and I was in a band there, you know, just the school band playing religious music for for like religious parties, for lack of a better word. But I was getting good at electric guitar, and then I was starting to play like "Stairway to Heaven," which where everyone starts with, and "Smoke on the Water." But I was already feeling that it was start it was time to start writing music, and I wrote two songs, you know, that are on this isolation album that I'm putting out now. Those were. They started around when I was 18 or 19. That was the first time I said, oh, I can now express myself, you know, and sound like a rock, make it sound like a rock song. But I'm, I was still in the religious life. I went to, to, you see, in the ultra-Orthodox communities, college is very much frowned upon. You're supposed to go to something like a seminary study, Talmudic studies to become a rabbi, and then come home, get married as quickly as possible, and have kids as quickly as possible. You're supposed to be in an arranged marriage. I'd say all my, all, I'm not sure if it's as the world would understand an arranged marriage, but there would be a matchmaker, you know, the, the, the boy would be, let's say 21, the girl would be 18, and you'd get seven dates, and then you have to make your decision. The arranged marriage is you're marrying him or she's marrying her, her like, mm-hmm. but th- this is some sort of, I guess a match made marriage. So that there was a lot of pressure to get the matchmaker and get married quickly and, and start your life as a into the next generation. but I was um, I came back from a year in Israel seminary, knowing that this was like the whole thing really was difficult for me because I hated it. but there was really you can't just walk out of the lifestyle you're walking away from your family, all your community. It's everything you know. it's very scary. Um, But I came back, moved to um, came back to Montreal, and one of the girls from the religious schools, she knew I was a rebel, and I guess she was a rebel too. And I was, um, my family had a little bit of money, and she came from a poor family, and she just sort of she sort of, um, seeked me out, and we started dating secretly, and it lasted for three to four years where nobody knew we were dating, and, and I avoided all the matchmakers, but. At some point, my family found out and her family found out, and I was highly pressured into marrying her. So, I mean, I can't say I was forced into it, but there was pressure to either marry her or break up with her and stop wasting her time. Mm-hmm. And so I did it, and she knew I wasn't religious. She was religious, actually, but she's the deal we had is she's going to cover for me. So she's going to make it look like I was following all the rules. So on the surface, it looked like I was going to prayers every day, and I was keeping kosher and keeping the Sabbaths. But in reality, when I was traveling, I was I was in the real world, or trying to blend into the real world. It really wasn't easy, because everything you know is from the ultra-Orthodox
0: world. Mm-hmm. You're still being introduced to all of this.
1: Yeah, it was like learning, 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 but it's really, really difficult to be something you're not. You know, so it's like I'm an imposter. I'm, in the sp- I'm a spy in the real world going back to my community. It was really an uncomfortable way of living because I didn't believe in what I was doing. And I'm not knocking the religious people, actually, because they seem very happy. My my cousins, my, my family seem very happy. Um, as long as you can believe it and you're following a set of rules that you believe in, there's a lot of support in that. But if you don't believe it, you know, They don't want to hear about it. So it's a feeling of extreme isolation. There's no one to talk to. And then if you walk into the secular world, you're pretty much a freak, you know, because you don't quite fit in. Like most of the world went to the same types of schools, watched the same type of TV shows, listened to the same radio. They talked the same. They were in sports teams together. I came in, it's like I've landed in from Mars, you know, trying to pretend to be a human. So my guitar never left me, and as the years went by, I kept on writing more and more songs, you know, as a way to express myself.
0: Okay, so at what point did you finally decide that you wanted to go into the studio and actually put these songs to tape?
1: So when I was about 29, maybe it was 1992, so I guess 28, um, I'd never, I mean, I had the songs, I knew how I wanted them to sound in my head. But there were two born-again religious musicians. So born-again, the Hebrew words are Baal means they, they found Judaism, out religious Judaism. They were secular, meaning they weren't practicing. So they walked into the tiny little synagogue that my family would go to every morning and, and every Saturday, they walked in, and it was obvious they were musicians. One of them had long hair, you know, and he told people he was a drummer. Long hair was like nobody had long hair. But um, I introduced myself right away, and I bugged him and his friend. So one guy's name was Zeb, and the other guy's name was Gary. And I just bugged him. I said, can you guys listen to my music? I want to record it. I want to just play it for someone because nobody ever was ever interested in listening to my songs. You know, I, my ex-wife certainly wasn't interested in listening. My cousins, like, they'd listen for, for 30 seconds just to be polite. But nobody was interested in listening to anything other than religious music. So the drummer said, sure, come over to my house. He had a drum set, and I had my electric guitar, and I brought an amp. I plugged it in, and I played one of my first—I only had two or three songs. And he said, oh, I love this. This is a hit. Not that he knew what that meant, but he he just— He loved it, and he called in Gary, and Gary was was a guitarist. And uh, I said, let's record it. I had some money. So we practiced, and we practiced. The drummer felt strongly that if we're going to record music, we have to play it live at least once. You know, it never even occurred to me, why would we want to play it live? But he says, you have to have that experience. So we went to an open mic, and um, we played three songs, the three songs. People seemed to like it. There were maybe 12 people in the, in the bar. It was late on a Tuesday night or something. But we went into the studio and recorded it. And over a two- to three-year period, I recorded 12 songs, 1992, 1993. And I was happy with the way they sounded. I made, uh, I made some, so in the era of cassettes still. So uh, I made some cassettes, gave them out to a few, a few friends, and then did nothing with it.
0: So you just sat on it from after making a few cassettes and didn't, like, did you even attempt to pitch it to any record labels or anything?
1: I would have known and had no idea how to talk to a record label. I had no other musician friends other than these two guys. I had, I mean, there was a, sm had a talent search once, and I think I mailed a cassette in, but it would have be, looked ridiculous compared to what professional bands would have sent in. And, like, there was really no hope of it ever going anywhere. I just wanted the music down. This was the early 90s, and, okay, I did it. I'm proud of it, and there it is. And continue it, living my ultra, my fake ultra-Orthodox life. And at least I know that I, that I did this. I got 12 songs recorded. And nothing happened until, well, nothing happened until, <laughs> until this August. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's just just a little bit of time in between albums. And, of course, I want to find out what you were doing in between that period of time, in between recording these songs and the actual release of this album, which just came very recently. And, of course, I'm going to be playing another track off of Isolation very soon here. But before we do that, we just want to go ahead and take a quick Break so that we can take care of a little bit of business. And like I said, play another song off isolation before we get back into this conversation with Danny Blueberry. So, first things first, I, of course, want to go ahead and tell you, the listener of the Desert Tiger podcast, that's right, that's you, you, you beautiful being right now listening to this show. I want to tell you about I love DTP.com. And as you heard me tell you earlier, I love DTP.com is not only the place where you're going to go ahead and get yourself some of the finest in Desert Tiger broadcast merchandise, it also means that that's where you're going to go so that you can support the show everywhere you go, in front of your friends, in front of your family, in front of even your enemies. Because they can't stop you from doing what you want to achieve from chasing your dreams. Screw them haters, baby. You know what it is? It's all good. And not only that, it also allows me to improve the show by allowing me to get better equipment. To go to more various locations, conferences, shows in order to get these interviews that you so lovingly listen to every single week and of course it also allows us to invest in more merchandise so that you can continue to have new cool items it's a show of your love of the show and i mean i believe that's what they call a win-win so hand over those w's baby because you know that's all we eat steady diet of w's over here at the DTP And you also know what you're going to want, what you're going to need while you're repping the Desert Tiger Podcast everywhere you go. You know what it be? It's X, Y, Z, baby. Do you like the taste of X but wish it had the benefits of Y? Well, all at the same time, it had the easy going down texture of Z. Well, let me tell you about X, Y, Z, baby, because it is a clever way of me telling you that your ad could go right here in this spot. That's right, this spot on the Desert Tiger Podcast. All you have to do in order to get this process started is email me over at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com, and we will continue this conversation even further. But until then, it's about time we gave another spin to another track off of Isolation. And you know that these tracks are burning. They're hot. They're spinning as if they were a tire on the Batmobile as the crew, you know what they do, is they're out there trying to stop a little bit of Robin. You know who it is. It's Batman and Robin.
1: The commission of Gordon to the chief inspector. I believe that my daughter a communist defector. As policeman of this town, it's your duty to protect her. The Sherman boy wondered if Batman would reject her. Batman and Robin, could the stop be Robin?
0: stop. Okay, so were you continuing to write songs in between there, or were you just continuing to play in the church, or how were you were you continuing to pursue music at all?
1: Well, I can. I've still. I've never stopped writing songs. So those were twelve that I'd written by 1992. Today I have about seventy songs. So, um, but I, so I've never stopped it. I just kept the songs come from whenever I'm experiencing something, something strong you know, something that moves me. So my reaction to that is I'm going to pick up a guitar and, exp- and put it down. It's like a little Dear Diary. So the 70 songs, like every single song that I've written, there's a story behind it as to why I wrote it. And it's meaningful to me. I didn't really write it to an impressive audience, but they are like three to four-minute songs in the format that I grew up with. Uh, but it was only... I Remember, I was living an ultra-Orthodox life, so mm-hmm. it was only when I was getting my divorce in around 2005, I separated from my, from my wife, and there was a, a very bitter custody battle. And my wife outed me to the community and told everyone that I wasn't religious, so I was sort of exposed. Oh, wow. And in financial trouble on top of that. So, well, the divorce cost a fortune, and the business wasn't going well, um, that I started just out of a way to get out of the house. I was going through a depression. I started playing local open mics in Montreal. So you're familiar with open mics are, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so so I, I had no idea, but apparently you, you go in with the guitar and you can sing two to three songs in a bar and they give you a free drink. So this was my, okay, so now I'm, the community no longer wants me there. I'm not religious. I don't know anything about the outside world, but I take my guitar And um, I played three of my songs in Brutopia, which is a bar on uh, Bishop Street in Montreal. This is somewhere around 2009. I was nervous as hell. I remember my hands were clammy um, and I prepared for a week. But I got up there and people clapped and they really appreciated the the three songs I did and the way I played them. You know, since I was writing the way I did in, in isolation, you know, they came. The, the lyrics were funny to, to them. They were put together differently. I didn't sound like anybody else. And I started making friends very quickly. And I started getting addicted to open mics. So I started going there. If there was an open mic in Montreal, I was going to it. And it was almost like five nights a week. And uh, free shots. So I almost developed a drinking problem in the first year or two because I was getting so many free drinks. And I, I didn't realize it was a problem until like a, a year and a half later friend of mine said, you know, you're drinking a lot. And you know, I I said, no, I'm not. He says, well, how often are you drinking? And I said, oh, you know what, you're right. I I had to pull back. But uh, it took about seven or eight years to develop a social network of artists and musicians that liked my music enough to want to play with me. And uh, I guess around a year and a half ago, we became a band. I started playing shows At the Cafe Mariposa and Cafe Sheka, which are two local places in Montreal, and people started showing up, and I sold out Mariposa, Sheka sold out, you know. So suddenly I'm a draw, and I've got two. I had two musicians, Alison Vanderland and Elias Marcos, who who joined me and were interested in making something of the project. So we started learning those songs that were on my album from 1992. And we brought in more band members. And then I went to, um, I forgot where was. Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the place that made my CD, Duplication CA. And um, I burnt the CD. I still had the, originals, the original masters, so I burnt the CD out. And I made cover art. I decided to call it Isolation, because all these songs were written in isolation. And we did an album launch at uh, Montreal Wheel Club. Um, in august and about 200 people showed up we filmed it and uh found a publicist and suddenly i'm doing
0: interviews (laughs) wow so there's actually four other songs on this album that were recorded afterwards so at what point did you begin to decide that you wanted to record songs like good turnout and climb
1: well i thought those were great songs you know i and um the fellow Elias, Elias Marcos, is a percussionist and an amazing guitarist. And before we decided to launch Isolation, before the idea of these 12 songs came out, he said, I want to work on some songs with you. And um, I picked this four random songs out of the 70 I've written. And I said, oh, well, I, let's see what these will sound like. So we mixed them basically in his, in his bedroom. He had a computer system with all the recording things. And that's just him and me and some effects, and we put them down. They were pretty rough, actually. He wasn't happy that we were, that I'm actually adding them to the, to the CD, but we did this before the Isolation um, album was, was uh, like before I even thought I'm going to make the CD. These were just almost like practice tracks for songs I'd written. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I did Isolation, I said 12 songs. I don't know if I'm ever going to record another album, but we've done these already, so let's look at them as bonus tracks. I love them. I mean, I like the way they sound. I mean, I don't think they're mixed professionally, but they're raw and they get the idea across pretty well. So I said, well, why not add them to the 12 songs?
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I feel like they definitely are a good addition. It shows growth. It shows a little bit other, of other things as well with you as a musician and how you've just continued to expand your musical realm as well.
1: Oh, the songs are way different. I'm a I'm a much different person now than I was 25 years ago. I I think that the next album is going to have like remixed versions of those four songs, and then uh, and then another 12 songs, and uh, I'm going to start working on those pretty soon.
0: Okay, so for. Th- the next album are some of these songs going to be songs that you're writing with the current group of musicians that you have? Or are they also going to be some of the songs out of the seventy that you have, and then maybe a few more that get written along the way?
1: Well, I, I almost selected the, the the songs for the next album already. I mean, they're more recent. I'm not recording any. I'm not going to record anything I did twenty five years ago. Those were those are already on isolation. But I'd say the next album is going to have songs that I've written over the past three to four years. The other members of the band, I've encouraged them to write or to bring anything they've got, but they seem to just be happy playing my stuff. They're not really composers.
0: Well, I mean, if you're selling out shows and getting good feedback, I guess you got to be doing something, right? (laughs) I I
1: think the story resonates. You know, a, a lot of people, although they wouldn't have grown up exactly like me, can identify with being isolated. And the songs themselves... I, I just write, I, I, I write it as I, as I see it. And for some reason, you know, the way I write it seems funny to a lot of people. And you know, I'm writing with hooks. There's melodies that come back from the early 1900s Eastern Europe synagogues mixed with punk and, and, um, and uh, progressive rock and classic rock. It's a strange mix. And uh, I think people are just going to be interested in, in different types of music. Or interesting music.
0: Okay, I think they definitely will be as well. So, what kind of feedback and reception have you received for the album so far?
1: Well, everyone just says it's a wicked album, you know, and it's it's a mixed bag. So, I mean, the songs, each one, I I believe stands alone as a great song. But if you try and figure out the genre that's there, there's many, many different styles. But everyone seems to love it. I mean, that's the reaction I'm getting
0: okay okay so i i hate asking for a favorite song because sometimes that's asking someone for like what's your favorite child right yeah exactly okay so what i want to ask is is there a song among these 12 or multiple songs among these 12 where after recording them in 1992 to 1993 94 Now that you finally released it, is any of these songs, have they evolved and taken on a new meaning for you?
1: You know, I don't think so. You know, the songs, the emotions that I had when I wrote the song, when I perform them now, I feel exactly the same. The same, it just brings me back to the time when I've written it. And uh, I, I can't say that it's changed much in the way I feel about the songs.
0: Okay. That's fair. Definitely yeah. fair. All right. So I actually also, before I let you go, want to ask you a bit about your company, Blueberry Guitars. Where did it get its start? And once again, there's the name Blueberry there. So where is the connection of Blueberry?
1: All right. Well, my actual name is Danny Fonfetter. That's my, the name, my legal name. But when my mother died, okay, so it'll start like this. My mother died when she was 54. And I had a, a rough relationship with her. I was, I was relatively young when she passed away. And I had a young daughter that was born right after her. And as is the tradition, you're supposed to name your child after a parent who passed away. My mother's name was Talia. So my baby girl would, ha- would theoretically have been named Talia. But then I thought every time I'm going to call her name, I'm going to be thinking about my mom and I'll think of the bad memories of how she died young and how um, how difficult our relationship was so I figured I'm gonna think of a sweet memory of my mother to put after my daughter's name and uh, my mother's my mother used to bake blueberry muffins like once a month in, in our house me and my sister and my mother and the house used to smell fantastic so I figured I'm gonna name my daughter Talia Blueberry to remember those blueberry muffins So. Then the divorce came, and I didn't know if I was going to get custody of my daughter, Talia Blueberry, who we call Bluey. And I was traveling on a business trip in Asia, and I was in Hong Kong, and I took a side trip to Bali, Indonesia. Um, So Bali is a sort of um, paradise island. And I'd left my guitar in the hotel in Hong Kong. So I'm sitting in Bali, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to spend five days without a guitar. Um, So I started looking for a guitar in the on the island of valley and there was at that point not one guitar store where, or music store where i could find a decent guitar i found a guitar finally in something like a local Seven Eleven. it was twenty dollars and it sounded terrible so I mean, it was losing its 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 tone in the in the taxi so we were driving by a wood carving village and there were wood carvers like carving out temple art on the steps like chiseling away and uh, tourist art, like little dragons. And I said, these guys have been carving wood for a long, long time, why can't they build guitars? So I asked the taxi driver to pull over and take me to the best gallery, best wood carving gallery. So he did, and I went in with this guitar that I bought at the the convenience store. And I asked the owner if he thought he could build a guitar. He'd never seen a guitar like that, or he had never seen actually a guitar or touched a guitar. But we went to the back of his shop, and we cut open the guitar, and we examined it. And he said, yeah, I think I've got the machinery for this. So I said, great. I'll be back in three months. Here's $200. Please build me uh, three or four of them and put all your sculptures on it. So I want to see dragons. I want to see goddesses. I want to see flowers. Carve all over it says, okay. And then I gave the taxi driver $100. And I said, go check on this guy and send me pictures and make sure that he's doing the work. I'll be back in three months. So that's what happened. I came back. I flew back to Canada, went back to Bali and uh, three months later. And sure enough, he'd carved two, two acoustic guitars in the shape of guitars, but they were sculptures of guitars. So they would weigh like 30 pounds each. They'd had beautiful carvings on them. They were unvarnished, but uh, clearly they're not guitars. They just looked like guitars. And I understood that, you know, this is something that could be beautiful, but we're, we're not there. We're a far, far away away. So I took these sculptures of guitars, brought them back to Montreal, and started looking for luthiers, which is guitar builders in Montreal, who'd be willing to go to Bali and teach these guys how to make guitars. So nobody in Montreal was took me seriously. I was making call after call. They said, you're out of your mind. Nobody's going to want to decorate an acoustic guitar. You know, it may be electrics, but forget about the acoustics. And, um, I started looking in Vermont and I found that the owner of a guitar building school, And um, the name of his company is called Vermont Instruments. His name was George Morris. And I asked him, I, I, well, I told him about it. He says, you have to come to my shop. So I drove three hours to Post Mills, Vermont with these sculptures of guitars. His whole class was amazed. And he started looking at it. He says, well, if you carve here, it could work. If you don't carve, but you can't carve here. And so he was interested. He'd he'd known Bali because he'd studied art with his wife there like 20 years before that. So he says, if you pay my ticket, I'll go there and teach these guys how to build guitars. And um, long story short, he went. It's too late for long story short. But uh, he went to Bali. I paid for his ticket. He stayed for a year and a half. And the the directive was to build the best-looking and best-sounding guitars in the world, because I figured if they only looked good, they'd never sell. They have to be beautiful. And um, I named the company after my daughter, Blueberry, because at that point during the custody battle, I didn't know whether I was going to have much time with her. So I wanted her to know that I was always thinking about her when I was out there. And so Blueberry Guitars was born, we launched at the Montreal Jazz Festival in 2007, and uh, f- despite what the Montreal Luthiers thought, the idea really hit it off with musicians and artists, and we sold
0: thousands of these. Well, every single one of them is unique, is it not?
1: Yeah, every single one is a, a different work of art. I mean, it's, If you, you listeners out there, um, Google image blueberry guitars, and you'll see what we're talking about. It'll take you a second. But yeah, each one is a specific, uh, unique piece of art. And they've all got the fingerprint. If you look at the inside the label of the guitar under the sound hole, the carver that carved the guitar, I've made sure that he puts his fingerprint on it so he's a part of it.
0: Wow. That's cool. I didn't know that you were doing that with that.
1: Yeah. Well, we've got a following. I mean, we've been doing this for a while.
0: Oh, well, you're creating not only musical instruments, but individual pieces of art that people can carry with them. And it's, it's like something else you can't get anywhere else as far as I know.
1: <laughs> no, we're the only people in the world that, that have done this. And I, I, my thinking was, like, the music stores, when, I, when we first launched it, the music stores were dead set against this. You know, there was either buy your Martin guitar or a Taylor guitar you know, and that was it. You know, that, the upscale. Nobody was interested. And who's going to want this? And then if we finally got out a client that was a music store, they'd look for little nicks and scratches on it to ask for discounts. And it was impossible to get the Balinese to make a guitar like a shiny, you know, like a, like a shiny coin. Because it's, it's a workshop. They're sitting, under, they're sitting on the floor chiseling away. They're trying to create art. We're not factory producing them. But the artists and the musicians understood right away you know, you're holding a piece of art next to you, it's meant to inspire you. So, as you know, at that point, I never thought I was going to have a music career at all. And I said, this is my contribution to the world of music, you know, at least I'm contributing something so that other artists
0: and musicians can make music and express themselves. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that very Thanks. much. All right. Before I ask my last question of you, Danny, where can the listeners of the Desert Tiger Podcast find out more about Danny Blueberry and where can they find Isolation?
1: Well, Isolation, you could go to my band camp and look for Danny Blueberry Isolation, but it's also available on Apple Music and iTunes and Spotify and all other fine online locations. If you want to learn about like my shows that are coming up or, or all the events that we've got planned and new music, um, the most active place is my facebook page so it's at danny blueberry music and of course we have a website danny dannyblueberry.com but the facebook page is where the where the action is so at danny blueberry music
0: all right fantastic so danny. you mentioned that you named blueberry guitars after your daughter and of course blueberry being brought on to your musical name as well you also mentioned there was a point in time where you were afraid you weren't necessarily going to have time with your daughter and going through my research and some of the social media I can see that clearly you are getting some of that time. So has Bluey had the opportunity to see you play live and what does she think of isolation?
1: Bluey is my absolute number 1 fan. <laughs>
0: you
1: know she she'll one day be my manager. Now she's 16 and she's downstairs sleeping. But uh I got shared custody in the end. It was a horrible custody battle, but at the end we got 50-50. I was able to maneuver her out of the ultra-Orthodox school, so she got a good, solid education. She's a very bright kid. And uh, the shows that are at the cafes and not at the bars, she comes to, she sometimes films them, she helps me organize them. She's been wonderful. So that worked out well.
0: I'm very, very happy to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Alright, thank you so much for joining me here today, Danny.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Colton. I I really appreciate the time.
0: And with that, we are drawing near the end of another exciting, another enthralling episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. Of course, have no fear, because we're going to be back next week, and I'm going to be telling you exactly what's going to be on that episode very soon. But of course, before we get there, there's a few things I want to go ahead and do first, and one of those things is give another big old Desert Tiger podcast thank you to Danny Blueberry for joining me here on today's episode of the podcast. A little behind-the-scenes note, it was actually about 11 p.m. at night when we finished up this interview where Danny lives, so I'm incredible, thank incredibly Thankful to Danny for staying up and having this amazing conversation with me. I also want to go ahead and thank the man EA, you know what it is, Eric Alper, for helping set up another amazing interview here at the Desert Tiger Podcast. You guys know we have mad love for the man EA over at Sirius XM Canada. You are a gentleman and a scholar, Eric. I also want to go ahead and thank you, the listeners of the Desert Tiger Podcast, for once again tuning in to another amazing episode of the DTP with me, your host, Colton G. If you're new to the show, maybe you want to consider hitting a follow or subscribe on whatever service you're listening on. Maybe you want to go ahead and review the show on Stitcher Radio or on Apple Podcasts. Or maybe if you're so inclined and enjoyed this episode enough, maybe you want to share it on your social media, your Instagram stories, your Twitter feed, your Facebook page. I would be ecstatic for even just one of those, and if you enjoyed this show so much that you even want to tell somebody who might enjoy this episode as well about it in person, If you're the type of person that still does that sort of thing, then I would also be incredibly ecstatic and maybe the best way to do so is to do so while wearing a t-shirt that you picked up over at ilovedtp.com because what better way to show your love of the show than by repping it everywhere you go. That's right. Alright, so a few weeks ago I said that we were going to start releasing the best of the last two years of Desert Tiger, and what I didn't realize is that there's a lot of moments in the last two years of Desert Tiger. My goodness, it's an incredible amount of content to go through, so I am so thankful to those of you who have um, emailed me or messaged me what your favorite moments of the show were, and you can do so by messaging us on Instagram facebook twitter or you can even email us at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com with your favorite moments of the show so next week is going to be the best of year one i wasn't sure how i wanted to break it down if it was going to be funny and then serious but i think we're going to do year one and then year two year one had a lot of highs it was the beginning of desert tiger There was a lot of things that still needed to be figured out, and there was still a lot for me to learn, and going back and listening to those episodes now, I can tell you, uh, I used the word exciting a lot back in the past, and I am sorry for those of you who have stuck with us for this long and have put up with the amount of repetition I had back then, but thank you for sticking around for the growth of the show. So like I said, next week is the best of year one. So you can expect to hear incredible moments from individuals like Alone I Walk, Nick Vatterot, Kenny Lush, Evil Ebenezer, Brad Merritt of 5440, and so much more. All here next week and then the week after that. We have the best of year two, and the last year has been an incredible surge for Desert Tiger Podcast. We have grown in leaps and bounds, and we are a nice, well-fed tiger now, and I can't wait to continue on into year three, which we're also going to be starting so very soon, so don't worry, Desert Tiger isn't going anywhere, we're going strong. That's right. I want to hear you all let out your biggest Desert Tiger Podcast roar. Ah! Have a good week, everybody.